back to another episode of Cinema Wheeler Tay. It's uh, Sean, Tony, and Scott, as usual. Hi. Hey. And uh, we have our first returning guest coming back. Uh, he's a favorite of ours, uh, Josh Greenwald. Oh, I'm a favorite. Yes. <laughs> so do I have to sign up for like a, a repeat offender list now? You do, To yeah. go to my neighbors and be like, I am required by the state of Ohio to tell you I have been on Cinema Wheeler Day more than once. I'm hoping to get to, you know, like five-timer status. Oh man! Right now you're two times. That's right. You're, you're, you're two times. Two times. Got to get a jacket. On, uh, uncharted exactly. waters. Got to give you a jacket once you get yeah. to five times club. Sweet. So. Uncharted waters here, you know, but uh, Josh is here today to talk about a subject that's uh, uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's. Not only uh, a movie that made a big impact on me when I was a kid, but I think the character in general has made a huge impact on me. And we're talking about Tim Burton's Batman from 1989. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Wrong movie, but right theme song. It's... Uh, uh, but uh, you exactly verbalize Danny Elfman's score. No, that's kind of hard, you know. But you can do that with uh, with the Batman theme. Um, so yeah, we, we're talking about Batman and the character of Batman, which was introduced to me. I, of course, had known who Batman was before the film, but this is the movie that kind of introduced Batman to me in a major way, where I actually started to gain an interest in him and love the character and go back and and. and learn everything I could about the character. And uh, I don't think I'm alone with my generation. I think a lot of people had that same experience. But uh, uh, Batman, I think, is just a huge part of our culture in general now. I think he's probably alongside Superman and Spider-Man is probably the big three of superheroes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. And obviously he's been revived pretty much in every decade that I can think of. You know, even when you think Batman's going out of fashion, he comes right back within a 10-year span. So, um, you know, he's here to stay. Yeah. <laughs> and he's been here for seventy five over 75 years, so... Is he the oldest comic book? No. No, Superman, Superman. actually predates okay. Batman by a year. Okay. Uh, you know, Superman debuted in a, in a comic called Action Comics in 1938, and Batman, because Superman was so popular, yeah. they wanted to come up with uh, new superheroes. Uh, and Bob Kane, I think, was commissioned. He was one of the artists that was working for DC. I think it was called Detective Comics at yeah. the time. Yeah, that's what it's, that is it. And he and this guy named Bill Finger, um, they kind of collaborated to kind of embellish this Batman. The, the character came up because uh, I think Bob Kane had designed it on a Da Vinci design of a bat like some sort of bat design that Da Vinci had concocted during the Renaissance. And oh, wow. it, it was like like where a man could wear some sort of wings, you know, to fly, mm-hmm. yeah. flying contraption. Okay. And he called it a bat hyphen man. And then Bill Finger came in and said, well, why don't we give him a cow, make it dark, you know, black and, and blue. We'll make him a billionaire called Bruce Wayne. Uh, we'll give him a bat cave. We'll give him butler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll give him all common. this stuff. <laughs> Who doesn't bat have a bat cave? Yeah. 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 And, and then and Bob Kane was like, sure, I'll take the credit for it. Yeah, exactly. Day. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. So they're finally Bill Finger. <laughs> that was yeah. a great idea. Yes. Glad right. I thought of them. So Bob Kane for years had been credited as the sole creator of Batman, but as time has gone on, Bill Finger is now getting the co-credit, which he deserves. Yes. Uh, so even though and they're both co-creators because Bob Kane did come up with the concept and everything so 
Is that like Stanley and Jack Kirby? Where yeah. Jack Kirby yeah. kind of gets pushed aside. Comics, I'll tell you, there's so many stories in comics about like who created what and, mm-hmm. and who gets credit. Like, you well, know, I think a lot of times whenever you're working on a on a creative collaboration, such as a character or a play or things of that nature, um, it's probably pretty easy to get some of the lines blurred in terms of who came up with what element. You know, because you're working so closely together on things and things tend to change at the drop of a hat. And next thing you know, you're like, did I come up with the idea for the cape or did you? Did we, who came yeah. up with the idea to make him have blue eyes? You know. And that seems to be happening a lot with like the early Batman comics. But it sounds to me like based on the research I've done and, you know, it sounds like Bill Finger really came up with the core of core essence of the Batman mythology. Like, he's the guy really responsible for fleshing out everything. The things we love about Batman now, it seems like he was the one who came up with those those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did debut in Detective Comics in 1939. It was issue number 27. I know this because I'm a Bat fanatic. <laughs> and uh, he's had a variety of different iterations over the years, both in comics and in live action. There's the 60s television series. That's probably the thing that really brought yeah. Batman into the mainstream yeah. for a lot of people. That's what I first saw. West. Yeah. And, you know, he was on cartoons like Super Friends, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and then in the comics, you know, there were iterations where he would be lighthearted and science fiction and they would go back to the roots where he was a dark, brooding hero. Uh, and that became a big thing in the 1980s, like the mid-80s with the Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns and Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. Killing Joke yeah. That's when Batman uh, really went back to his darker roots and that made room for the movie we're about to discuss today. So I was going to ask all of you, like, what was your first exposure to both Batman as a character in general and, and this specific movie, the, the 1989 Batman directed by Tim Burton? We'll start with that, Josh. Um, well, I, I think I just mentioned, I, I, I watched the uh, Adam West show for a, a few years. So I was, I was really excited. I was uh, nine years old. When the movie came out, I remember seeing it opening weekend. Uh, I became super obsessed with Batman yeah. after that. Um, I remember when the sequel came out, I was like counting the days down. Um, so, it yeah, uh, and then you know from there, I I went to flea markets with my grandparents and bought up all the comics I could. And you know, since then, I've uh, you know I, I still get Batman comics to this day. You know, I, I mean, I get this point at this point since I'm a, an adult, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll I'll wait for the graphic novels to come out where they compile comics. Um, as much as I love going to comic book stores, mm-hmm. it's kind of a time suck, and it's, yeah. it's expensive. So. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. I my first uh, introduction to Batman the character is probably the TV show. I think they play a lot of the the old episodes on. I don't even know what channel they would play them on, but I, I knew I was aware of WGN that stuff. Yeah, w, w, WGN. WGN yeah. probably played them. Um, definitely Nickelodeon TV Land later on, yeah. I think. And uh, But I know when the movie was coming out, they, they started playing them again. And uh, I remember seeing them. It's like, oh, this, this is going to be... And I remember being excited. It's like, hey, let's watch this. There's a Batman movie made in 1966. <laughs> and it was just a TV show, a longer version of the TV show. Uh not the same as this movie. Um, <laughs> There's no shark repellent. <laughs> There's no, no shark repellent. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, I, you know, there wasn't a lot. There was, you know, they followed the same trend. Two episodes are essentially one story. Yeah. 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 We don't need to go on a TV show, but um, Adam West was great, but it was more of a campy comedy. 
than a, you know, superhero, you know, like you typically see, like, TV shows, but, um, yeah, that was my first experience, it's pretty much, this movie is pretty much what, you know, uh, led to me knowing what Batman was all about, truly, because I didn't read the comic books, you know, I read Transformer comic books. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I read the highbrow comic. <laughs> you read highbrow. I read the I read the ones based off toys. <laughs> I thumbed my nose at superheroes. Uh, give me a Transformer comic and I'm set. Uh, yeah, just as a caveat, I love Adam West Batman, by the way. I think he's hysterical. If you ever watched those mm-hmm. old classic television shows, he's so deadpan and so funny. He basically yeah. essentially dresses up like Batman just to solve riddles. That's, like, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty much what he does. If this were a TV show, this would be the portion of the podcast where we'd enter wham! Yeah. Pow! <laughs> Boom. Boom. <laughs> and um, okay, so for me, in 1989, the movie came out in the summer, so I was three and a half. <laughs> so I definitely did not see it in the years. <laughs> if I did, I really don't remember. Um my real first recollection of the character Batman, and in turn then the movie, would probably be in grade school. I mean, I remember little boys in kindergarten, first grade, dressing up for Batman and it's Halloween. Um, you know, I remember I got Batman Valentines, and I definitely knew Batman was a superhero. I didn't really know much about him other than that. <laughs> um, I would say that I, I really probably gained more knowledge and insight onto the character, you know, as I grew older. Um, I can't really remember the first time I saw the film. I think it might have been on TV at some point. The Tim Burton film might have been on, you know, on TV at some point in time. Uh, it definitely wasn't something that I sought out to see. Not because I had anything against it. I just, um, you know, I don't have any brothers. I just, it, it was more of a boy thing. And you know, I'm, I'm not being sexist. I'm just being honest. I was, oh, dare you? I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, I was, you know, into doing girl things and, you know, watching a little mermaid <laughs> when I was five. Um, that came out the same year, too, <laughs> oddly <laughs> enough. But the little mermaid, I was a little bit more of its target market. <laughs> 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 then, this, this is kind of a sequel to our Little Mermaid podcast, where I said I was really heavily into Batman and didn't have any time for Little Mermaid. Yeah, this is the reverse exactly, of that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but, I, but as I've grown older, of course, of course, with the aid of, you know, just having more men in my life and seeing the Chris Nolan films, you know, I've become more um, familiarized with the character of Batman and the story behind it. Um, and oddly enough, after rewatching this Tim Burton film, I really have a newfound respect for this Batman and this particular film versus some of the newer stuff. Yeah, my first exposure to Batman in general, I think I was a kid, and I wasn't really heavily into superheroes when I was really young. I, I loved Star Wars, and I loved the Muppets, but when I would see Batman and Superman, I, I didn't dislike them, but they didn't have an impact on me back then. Yeah. I remember Batman, I think my first exposure to Batman and Robin was, they were guests on the Scooby-Doo show. I remember yeah. watching that episode, oh, yeah. uh, The Murder Mysteries. And they were facing the Joker and the Penguin. They, the Joker and the Penguin were working as a tandem in this episode. And I made the assumption that the Joker and the, yeah. and the Penguin were a team all the time, that they never separated. <laughs> it's like Batman and Robin. Uh, and then, you know, I just knew who Batman was in general. He was a part of pop culture. Yeah. But when the movie came out, I remember seeing a trailer on, like, uh, E.T. or Inside Edition or one of those shows. And they were really hyping. Oh, I take that back. The first time I heard about the movie itself was... There was a Newsweek profile on Michael Keaton because Michael Keaton had a big year with Beetlejuice in a movie called Clean and Sober, 
which was critically acclaimed, where he played like a drug addict, a yuppie drug addict. And it was a brilliant performance. If, if you ever want to check out Clean and Sober, I highly recommend hmm. it. But they mentioned that he was being cast as Batman. And, like, and it was directed by Tim Burton, the guy who directed Pee-wee's Big Adventure and, and Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is clearly a comedy. This might be pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> it has Michael Keaton, and, and it's directed by this guy. And Jack Nicholson, you know, who's... Right. Uh, funny. And, and so... Then I saw the trailer for the movie, and I was like, wow, that looks kind of interesting. And I started getting more and more interested, because the marketing of this movie, by the way, was huge. It was oh, everywhere. Yeah. You would see the bat symbol in comic books or magazines. The trailers were everywhere. And, and Jack Nicholson's personal gorilla marketing. Yes, about. which we learned about on the special features <laughs> that Jack Nicholson was going to the Oscars saying, you won't know the top on Batman or something. <laughs> but um, I got really interested in it, and I started buying all the making of which pretty much revealed the whole plot of the movie back then. They would not have all these, like, tie-ins. Uh, yeah, the yeah. dead coloring books and stuff. And, yeah. yeah. I remember. I, so there was... I remember seeing all the merchandise as a kid, you know, in the toy stores and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if the toy stores, or, or if the, um, I don't know if, I don't ever go in toy aisles anymore, but I don't know if they're still segregated. I know when I was a kid, they had boy toy aisles and girl toy aisles uh, and it was very clearly it, defined those are definitely that's still how it's still are. the same yeah. okay um but i do remember seeing you know the boy toy aisles was filled with nothing but batman stuff yeah it, it was everywhere in 89 like I, I can vouch for that and you would see the prince videos would be all over the place too <laughs> back then which yeah. is oh a different God. angle for the movie we'll discuss but i finally saw the movie and i was blown away like it just like, I liked Tim Burton's previous movies. Like, I loved Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and I loved Beetlejuice. They had an impact on me. But this was something else. Like, this, the whole character, the way it was presented, the the darkness of it, uh, it, it was just not what I anticipated a superhero movie to be mm-hmm. at that age. And I became a Batman fan immediately, and I bought everything Batman-related. I became a huge fan of the character after that. Um Another impact that this movie had on me, though, it was the first time I had ever seen Jack Nicholson in a movie. Like, for some reason, I wasn't ever? that... For, ever? yeah. Wow. Um, me beca- too, yeah. Because Jack, he wasn't really making movies that appealed... Like, I was probably 12 or 13 at the time, and I don't think in the 80s Nicholson really made a lot of films that appealed to people our age. Like, he That's wasn't true. in Indiana yeah. Jones movies. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. in any Spielberg movies, so... Or movies that were appropriate for us to see no no because he always took either fringe films that you know were going to appeal to a specific audience or they were like terms of endearment which no kid our age is going to go see terms of endearment in the theater i did see that one in the theater oh did you i'm kidding i was gonna say i was like wow (laughs) when i was in the womb i took a chance and (laughs) went with i was a big day book ever winger fan so technically speaking i saw it there you go um but the first time, that was not the first time I'd heard of Jack Nicholson. This is a weird caveat. I didn't know Jack Nicholson as an actor at this point. I was a Monkees fan in the late 80s, and Jack Nicholson wrote the screenplay for the Monkees only movie, Head, in the late 60s. Wow, so, because I was a Monkees fan, I knew Jack Nicholson as a screenwriter <laughs> before <laughs> I knew he was an actor. And then I think I saw a poster at a video store of the Witches of Eastwick with that with Jack Nicholson's yeah. name on front. And I go, ah, oh, I didn't know the screenwriter for Head was a star. Yeah, <laughs> it has his own poster. But then I saw this movie and I'm like, holy shit, who the fuck is this guy? And why has he been hiding from me this whole time? Because he was he was absolutely amazing in this. Like I was like, 
I couldn't believe how great Nicholson was. It could have been Robin Williams. I know it could have been. Well, you were yeah. probably familiar. I did know Robin Williams, you know, <laughs> and I, I knew Michael Keaton because of Beetlejuice. You know, that was like I think my yeah. exposure to him. But Nicholson was just so unbelievably charismatic and fun, and I never really like it was just it was like Harrison Ford. It was just like one of those actors that you're just like you could see why this is this guy's a movie star because he does things that nobody else does, mm-hmm. you know, and and. You know, sometimes I think Nicholson does take knocks for being over the top, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, he's supposed to be in this. I, yeah, he is. Watching this film had the same effect on me when I saw Pat Hingle. I was just like, <laughs> where has this guy been my whole life? <laughs> right. <laughs> just sitting back, I, I went back through his whole catalog just looking for movies. I oh, know, I did too. I was like, you know, Nicholson's good. but Surprisingly, this Pat- he didn't do a lot of movies I was interested in. No, <laughs> You should have got should have had the first billing. Bad names <laughs> during that angle. He did play Commissioner Gordon, so... He, I mean, he yeah, did. It, it was a, a quintessential role. I didn't know who Billy D. Williams was, because he was oh, Lando. Yeah, yeah Lando Carrizum. But, uh... Yeah. I, you know... <clears throat> that's weird when you know more about Billy D. Williams than Jack Nicholson. That's just the weird yeah. scenario to be in. But, um... I... That's, that's the angle where we're talking about Nicholson. Um... There's been a lot of uh, since Heath Ledger played the Joker in The Dark Knight. I remember there that there was when Nicholson was cast as Joker. It was like everybody said, "This is the perfect Joker. Like he's born to play the Joker." I can't imagine anyone else playing the part. Then Ledger came out with an entirely new kind of a reinterpretation of the character, and then everyone gravitated towards that and said, "Oh, that's the Joker." And Nicholson says, "Can't be." But when I'm watching it now, I'm like, you know, I kind of. I don't think it's comparable. They're apples and oranges. I think it's a, it's a different interpretation of the same character, and I think that Nicholson's performance is still really entertaining and a lot of fun. You know, he's not as menacing as Ledger, mm-hmm. but well, it's a totally different film. It is. Mm-hmm. Are totally different films telling a different story from I think a different perspective. So um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think comparing the two, which a lot of people do. Because they look at it as, oh, it's a character. But there are so many different sizes, elements, shapes, perspectives of characters. I mean, there's so many different ways to do one character. Um, well, I think this felt like a comic book movie. Which as, was but, what they wanted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, the, the, the Nolan films, I don't think, feel like a comic book movie. They those those like, were action. Yeah, those were action. They were crime well, they were, movie. They were made to be like blockbuster hits. I think this has a little bit more... The Tim Burton movie, in my opinion, has a little bit more heart. I think it it's, has a little bit more depth to it because it's honest. It really follows... I, I've never read the comic books, but from from copies I've seen, images I've seen, it seems to follow the comic book pretty closely, more so than... Well, it looks like a comic book, films. too. It looks like yeah. a comic book, too. Yeah. I think um, in a movie that another movie at that time is Dick Tracy looks like a comic book. Like they actually literally try to make these movies look like a comic mm-hmm. book. Yeah. And uh, nowadays that's you know you see a little bit like the Avengers. Like there's certain they try to homage to like they'll stop frame and they'll all be like doing yeah. their. Um, and I know like the Sam Raimi movies really try to make it look like a comic book at times. You know with the posing of the Spider Man and everything, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you know, the Nolan films, that they, what's, what if Batman was real? What if he really existed? What would you do? Yeah, that was a total different thing. <laughs> it was yeah. completely different, you know. 
And I think for me, uh, my personal taste is I really respect the Nolan films, and I actually really do like those movies a lot. Oh, I like, do I'm, too. A, I'm a fan. Oh, no, I enjoy yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but I think as far as Batman as a character is concerned, this still might be my personal favorite. I'm not arguing it's a better film. I'm just saying if I had to sit down and watch a Batman movie, I think I would pick this <laughs> at gunpoint. I would probably pick this just because I, of the flavor that it provides. Like, I like a little bit of flair. I like the fact that Batman has a very sleek Batmobile versus some clunky tank that he's taking around <laughs> for practical uses, as an example. The tumbler. The tumbler, yeah. Um, Would you be interested in that? I completely agree with you, Sean. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like, I even remember, uh, we're getting on a side tangent, but, like, Catwoman wasn't even called Catwoman in the third Nolan film. I think they were, she was just called Selena Kyle. Like, they were embarrassed to call her Catwoman, but they have a Batman. Like it, and they had her dressed like Catwoman. Yeah, yeah. it was just... Uh, well, she had they were flashlights <laughs> for kitty ears or something. <laughs> they weren't embarrassed to call Joseph Gordon-Levitt Robin, which no. wasn't his name. No. It was, that was just his... <laughs> it just makes no sense. That made no yeah. sense. Uh, well, we, have to, we should probably yeah, say exactly. that another day because yeah. there's so much to delve into Coming that. soon. Yeah. <laughs> Coming soon. It's a teaser. Um, but, Sorry to spoil that for people. Right. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I, I, I really do like what Burton did with this movie, and, and actually it's even different from a Burton film, because he shows some restraint from what he normally does in some of his other films. Like, this feels... It's like a fine line where it's sort of grounded in a reality we can kind of recognize, but it's also flamboyant in a way where it's not mm-hmm. exactly... Like, it's like a heightened New York City is essentially what Gotham is in this movie. And it's it's a masterpiece of production design because it's just this it's like exaggerated Art Deco, larger buildings, but it still feels lived in and gritty. You mm-hmm. know, um, I think the opening sequence in this movie in particular captures Batman for me better than any scene I've seen. When those two thugs attack that tourist couple at the beginning, and then they go up and they start bragging about what they just did and then Batman sneaks down from behind him it's like straight out of a Batman comic it's a classic Batman scene when he takes him down yeah yeah and that's when he says tell your friends I'm Batman right <laughs> and that's when we learned the story of Johnny Gobbs <laughs> which is apparently he got hit by the bat or he was drunk and he fell off a roof <laughs> Depending on you, who you believe, the, the crooks are... I really just wanted this movie to be about the tale of Johnny Gobbs and everyone's <laughs> perspective on how Johnny Gobbs died. Well, you know? Actually, on the Blu-ray, there's a half-an-hour vignette of the... No, there's not. No, I wish there was. <laughs> who is Johnny Gobbs? <laughs> he left us hanging with Johnny Gobbs. Gobbs. It's the ca- there's a, uh, a thug they're talking about at the beginning. It's like a friend of theirs, a mutual friend, and they're gossiping about the bat getting Johnny Gobbs uh, and killing him. And the other house? guy... It's it's an, it's the the idealist and the realist having a conversation about what actually happened to this guy. Then he like Gobbs got lit and walked off a building or something. Something like that, yeah. Um, but it really sets the tone for the movie that this Batman he's a vigilante, he's mysterious, you don't know much about him, but he's hardcore coming down on these criminals in this really corrupt city. Yeah. You know? So that, that that's one thing that they didn't really get into as to like why he just started then, because this isn't like. You know, the comic book or the Nolan movies where he's young and he's just getting started. Uh, in, in this one, he's you know older. I mean, I mean, he's not old. He's like in his forties, I think. In this late thirties, probably. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's just getting started then. So there's a pretty big gap there, and 
what sort of motivated him to become Batman that late? Yeah, that's that's an odd. Uh, that's a good question. Like, yeah, they didn't like they told the backstory of how his parents died, but it, you're right. They don't really go into really what motivated him. It's like all of a sudden, now he's Batman. Maybe it took him this long to get all the stuff ready as far as the suits, and build all the back end, yeah, to yeah, get the yeah. Batmobile, yeah. the the train, to actually train and and learn and. That's gonna take you a, also, a long yeah. time. About ten TVs too. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. In that cave and uh-huh. figure out how to hook all of them up. I don't know what purpose they have for fifty monitors, but I love it anyway. Like <laughs> right. it's like yeah. it's cool. I think it really just like soap operas. He wanted to watch General Hospital <laughs> at the same time as Dave. Exactly. It's all multitasking. But you notice that he watches. Uh, it's all the same program. <laughs> it's all the same program. <laughs> he doesn't really use them. He just has the same program on every TV. He just wants it surrounding him. That, that was eighties three D. They just couldn't make a TV big enough, so they didn't get a lot. You could buy a lot of TVs with the same image. And you know Bruce Wayne is really focused because he puts on his glasses and this movie. That's mm-hmm. when you know he's truly focused. And when he's really focused, he has a turtleneck on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, don't even start this. And I think, A, glasses are hot. B, so are turtlenecks on men. Mm. Okay, especially black ones. Take note, you. Plus, plus he's really rich. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and so brooding. he can't go wrong. Right. He's, he's wealthy. He has turtlenecks and glasses. But let's actually, let, I'm going to take this nice transition into the fashion in this film, which is one of the things that I personally loved. Mm. You know, I, first of all, I really like fashion in general, and I also, with my theater background, I love costuming, and I think that the costumes in this film were phenomenal. Very true to the comic book, well done, well suited, um, and just from a woman's perspective, I loved Kim Basinger. Every outfit she had on was just wonderful. I liked the character of Vicki Vale, and she was very fashionable and stylish, and I liked that. And I like her glasses that she wears, but she's getting serious in the uh, newsroom. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, I just think the costumes and um, the fashion was really appropriate, which might sound trivial to you gentlemen, but it really does make a big difference. Well, that's that's um, the Oscar it won. Thing. Exactly. The Oscar was costuming. And, Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, costumes really do create, a, they really do aid so much in character development and character perception, and I think sometimes people think, fashion or costumes is kind of superficial but I'm a firm believer in being detailed and that sort of thing so I really appreciated the fact that this movie really hit on that but being Tim Burton I'm not very shocked no I mean actually I, I watched a documentary on this film and they said that Burton one of the, the the people that worked on the costuming and the production end of things said that Burton is an art director's director like mm-hmm. he really cares about the images that you're yeah. seeing I agree with you 100%, Tony. I love the costuming in this mm-hmm. movie. It's probably one of the things that grabbed me, even if you're not focusing on it. Yeah. Because, A, this is my favorite Batman suit in all the films that I've seen so far, mm-hmm. like even today. It just feels like as close to the comic book, even though it's pure black, I just, it, it feels like Batman. It feels like you're watching Absolutely. a superhero in this yeah. movie, where I thought in some of the Nolan films, not, I don't want to be harsh on them, but it wasn't as... It didn't grab you in the same way. It, yeah. it, it maybe not as imaginative, maybe. It was like a military getup with some, you know, masks and ears and stuff. But that's what he was going for. No. Well, actually, exactly. exactly. They're it, two, yeah, they're, they're two different exactly. movies. I love the Joker's makeup in this, too, because he looks just like yes. the Joker. He I, totally does. The green hair, the purple yeah. suits. Yes. It actually won Best Art Direction, Set Direction. Oh, so it was not yeah. costume. Uh, I think Henry VIII. <laughs> was it Henry the Fourth or something won the Best? 
Um, <laughs> a good a movie you've anything. never seen. One. <laughs> so since you're looking, who won Best Supporting Actor that year? Because I remember the outrage that Jack Nicholson did not win. He was. I don't even think he was nominated. He wasn't. No, no. he was. He was nominated for a Golden Globe, but not an Oscar. Oh. And uh, it's like another Batman stub was Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, where she wasn't nominated yeah. for that film. But uh, actually, costumes weren't wasn't even nominated. God, what? that's yeah. shocking. It was, what other movie? What were the other contenders that year? Henry V, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Munchausen, that's, Munch- that's a good movie. Driving yeah. Miss Daisy, Harlem Nights, and Valmont. I will tell you, if you're going to watch Driving Miss Daisy versus Batman for the costumes, you know yeah. Dan Aykroyd's suit was impeccable in that Driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. So the best. Uh, uh, actor in supporting roles was uh, won by Denzel Washington for Glory, uh, Danny Aiello for Do the Right Thing, uh, Dan Aykroyd for Driving Miss Daisy, Marlon Brando for A Dry Wet Season, and Martin Landau for Crimes and Misdemeanors. Well, I would just say this: if you're uh, if you watch Dan Aykroyd and Driving Miss Daisy and Jack Nicholson and Batman, you can compare which one you thought should be nominated. Was Marlon Brando good in a dry, wet, se- white season? I have not seen it. It's not so dry, I, wet uh, season. It's dry, wet season. <laughs> dry, wet. I want to see the movie you just described. Yeah, now. I can see Brando doing that. It's dry, too. but it's wet. Oh. <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy just dominated these Oscars. Yeah. yeah. And that, if you think of all the movies in 1989, Driving Miss Daisy is probably what... You know, it's funny, I actually, this is a caveat on that, but the Oscars in 1990, which was the year that Batman would have been up for an award, Kim Basinger came up and says, I want to talk about a movie that's near and dear to my heart, and I swear to God I thought she was going to talk about Batman, because she was in Batman. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. It was do the right thing, because that was a controversial snub at that time, mm-hmm. uh, that they brought up recently this year, with the Oscar controversy this year, Spike Lee brought up that Driving Miss Daisy beat Do the Right Thing, and he was still bitter about that. It um, was a strong year, 1988. There were a lot of movies, uh, Field of Dreams and Dead Poet Society. And oh, yeah. yeah. My Left Foot was a huge uh, it, critical. It was, but it did win for production design, and I, that was Anton First who was the production designer, and people love the production design of this movie. I've, I've seen this ranked as one of the greatest pr- movies per production design ever. It's up there with Empire Strikes Back and I think maybe Lawrence of Arabia and The Godfather. Mm. People love the production design in, in this film, like the, the design of Gotham. It's fantastic. I mean, and going back to what you said about the first images when you the movie opens up, it definitely creates that dark city, that city that's kind of smog-filled and gray and... You just get the sense that perhaps it isn't safe and that it needs someone to help it. Yeah. And I think they did a really great job visually Mm -hmm. conveying that. And also the score. We've talked about the score. Mm, And talk about snub. Danny Elfman's score was not nominated for an Oscar for this one. What was? What was? Well, the winner you'll love is The Little Mermaid. Oh, that's fitting. (laughs) Uh, John Williams was nominated twice that year. For what? For Born on the Fourth of July and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, well, well, which are both good, but I mean, but Indiana Jones he's already did. I mean, yeah. throw a, throw and a bone. I think we can all <laughs> agree, going back to the Little Mermaid podcast, that that was a phenomenal movie in terms of the Disney Renaissance and the chance to create really good Broadway quality yeah, scores. Right. So I, I think that's well deserved. Well, I mean, it won Best Song too. I mean, for part of your the, world. It, no, that wasn't even nominated. Under what? the Sea. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not right, but at but, least it won. But 
the quintessential score of the 90s that people always talked about was the Batman score. It was one of the few scores where I knew people actually went out and bought the score. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, you didn't really hear about that too much. I mean, outside of Star Wars, people would literally go out and buy this Batman people score. People bought the Twin Peaks soundtrack. Yeah. That as well. Some people did. I don't think it was as widely popular <laughs> as, as Star Wars or the Batman. Well, you know? I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> that is another top contender that we can talk hey, about. Right, right. I saw the Batman. <laughs> the Batman's theme was played on the episode of Growing Pains. That's all. So that, <laughs> that doesn't tell you that. That doesn't tell you mass appeal. Okay, yeah. And the problem with that is too is like quality versus popularity aren't necessarily in correlation. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, I, quality and po- I think for the Batman score, definitely this, well, this is one of the best. Oh, that's an amazing. It score. was so well ingrained, and I mean, it, it lasted. It, you know, to the cartoon, basically the. Um, uh, oh, it, Alan Silvestri, he did all the. Who became pretty big later in film himself. Yeah. He did all the music for the uh, the animated series in the nineties, which. Uh, oh, okay. Sean and I were just discussing before this was probably the best repre- representation of Batman on the screen. Mm-hmm. Of anything, mm-hmm. but that all these elements that we're talking about just it went right through to there, and you know, out to the comics too. Mm-hmm. Um, Harley Quinn, there mm-hmm. she started in the cartoon. <laughs> she did, and now she's this huge character. She did, and and I, I remember Elfman's theme was the theme of the cartoon series when it mm-hmm. came out in '92. I mean, that's just how popular it was. And to me, what I love about it is it, it is immediate and it is striking, mm-hmm. and the first time you hear it. This is another thing about this movie. Like, I love not only the first time we hear the theme, but I love the technique that Burton used at the beginning with the Warner Brothers logo. It turns dark, which never happened in a movie before, where you'd see a studio logo change gradually to fit the theme of the movie. Hmm. And you go right into, with the opening credits, this long cavernous thing, which I thought, oh, we're going into the Batcave or something like that. And it turns out to be the Batman logo at the end of it. And that blew my mind. Like, wow, that's a great intro to a movie. It got me so excited to see Batman. And it set the tone. It set Mm -hmm. that dark tone. It did. I think Tim Burton's now known for that. He does, uh, he's one of the few people now that still does opening themes that show the credits in the beginning of a movie. Yeah. Now a lot of movies movies do a cold open party. They might show you the title, but they won't show you the credits. So mm-hmm. at the end of a the movie, they'll sh- they'll actually run a little title sequence at the end of the movie, and then they'll run the the scrolling credits at the end. Mm-hmm. I think they have that both. They yeah. do. Yeah. They do. yeah, yeah. But they have to either have it at the beginning or the end. No. And I personally always I always enjoyed that one. I think it's part tradition. I'm used I I'm used to seeing movies that do have a really imaginative opening credit. Going back to movies in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where they usually had some sort of um, score, and then they had the opening credits with fun, you know, sequences. Mm-hmm. And then in the eighties, the style was like doing cartoons, you know, like yeah, the cartoon yeah. opening. Oh. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> and then, oh. you know, and then well. it kind of like once the nineties came, that sort of kind of dissipated, and um, yeah, literally, open, like... yeah, and then openings just became their own thing based on the movie. Um, but I always admired and enjoyed the fact that Tim Burton still kept that style even you know even today and the movies that he creates now there's always a, a nice music score most likely Danny Elfman yeah and there are opening credits that are somehow tied into the theme or the tone of the movie so it kind of I like that because it just puts you in the mood for the movie and it puts you in that mindset and mm-hmm. makes you excited it does yeah and, and, and a similar thing happens when I think when they introduce the Joker's character too in, in, in a similar fashion where 
uh, Jack Napier is introduced, which I actually love those scenes with Jack Napier because it's the understated Joker, and, essentially. Yeah. And Eckhart, don't forget. Oh, oh, God, don't get me started. <laughs> we can't skip Lieutenant Eckhart is my 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 guilty pleasure in this movie. I love this character. He's how, the, come, the, how come he didn't take off like Harley Quinn? Like he just, <laughs> I don't know. You know, some comic book young comic book guys like I gotta get this guy's gotta get his own comic. <laughs> well, I think he's like uh, like a mixture of different characters in the comic. There was a guy called Harvey Bullock who was a detective in Gordon's Force who was somewhat corrupt in the comics. Mm-hmm. He was on the animated series yes, as a was. good guy, purely mm-hmm. good. He's on Gotham, too, I think, as one of the characters on Gotham, the TV series. But um, And there was another character called Flask, which was in a, a graphic novel called Batman Year One, written by Frank Miller, which was the first year that Batman became active. And Batman Begins draws a lot from Year One. So does this film. And they created this character called Lieutenant Eckhart, who's really corrupt and he's on the payroll of boss Carl Grissom who's the central mob boss in this movie and I love this scene well the two scenes I love with him are when the thugs from the rooftop are coming down and we inter- we're introduced to Andrew Alexander Knox who's Robert Wall's reporter character and the dialogue in this movie with Eckhart always cracks me up because he's like ah oh, they're drinking Drano up there <laughs> drinking Drano <laughs> It, I don't know, but oh, it's great. It, it wouldn't even get you high. It would just kill you. It would. As we saw with the Heathers. <laughs> so apparently Eckhart thinks that Drano is a hallucinetic drug. Uh, then there's a scene where Napier and his goon, Bob, are in a corner, and he comes out to take his his uh, his payoff in a sandwich, nonetheless, and bread. And... They have this confrontation, and I, I always, I always loved that character because he's. First of all, I can't believe Gordon keeps this guy on the floors because he's was, clearly corrupt. Was it an actual sandwich? I thought he handed him cash. No, it was cash and bread. The bread. Oh, oh there's yeah. bread. Uh, yeah. He goes. I brought the line. Brought is, you I, a snack. I brought you a little. I snack. thought that was this hard boiled dialogue. I thought, and then literally, I think he had bread in there. <laughs> That's oh, right. Okay. Well, it's not so. Yeah, he's being glib, obviously, but yeah, it's actual. <laughs> it's actual. <laughs> <laughs> that was his plan to hide it is put his money inside of his friend. well that's why Eckhart got so mad he was like, oh, oh, it's not God. a sandwich <laughs> what do you <laughs> Gris, that's why I don't like you Gris Grissom gets me that's, that's the Grissom actually God. puts deli cuts in here <laughs> that's why he doesn't like him cause... he was expecting food <laughs> And he did. <laughs> that's we we nailed it. Oh man, that's the root of their conflict. Is <laughs> I was expecting actual fucking food, Napier. <laughs> Napier is a real prick to that guy too. Yeah, he yeah. shoves him against the wall, and he's making fun of him. And oh, uh, well, things that obviously are going to change for Lieutenant Eckert because he's not going to be. Uh, no, no, it, it gets. So then we'll get to his. His employer, uh, Carl Grissom, played by Jack Palance, who chews the scenery up for his few scenes in this movie, I think, where he's yeah. he shouts all his lines, which I love. It's perfect I, for the character. I think that's the only way Jack Palance can speak. <laughs> I think so, too. Is he shouting or... It's like he's shouting at the same time restraining himself. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Palance can equally do both. He can yell about... <laughs> yeah. He's whispering at the highest volume you could possibly do. <laughs> Say this, son of a bitch. Yeah, son of a bitch. 
you know, and um, yeah, it is really weird voice. It is. It's it's it's, it's 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 crazy. Uh, Jack Palance actually they cast him because Burton said he wanted to find a guy that could truly intimidate Nicholson, and he's right. I yes, I can't see anybody not. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what we get. Um, going through the casting of of, of this movie. Um, go through some of the characters let's talk about vicky vale uh tony i know that you yes. had mentioned it you were a fan let's of the character talk about vicky vale. yeah i am a fan of the character and i'm also a fan of her name because <laughs> i'm a fan of alliteration me too and i do love that it's kind of a theme throughout all of the comic books is that most of the characters names are in some form alliteration um bruce wayne being one of the exceptions but um i do really like i don't know there's just something about vicky vale that i liked i think that she really fit this movie in terms of the character. Would the Vicky Vale character fit in in the Nolan films? Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I like him basing her. I think she was a great fit. Um, I like that the character is very feminine and at the same time um, pretty independent, especially for that time. You know, late 80s. She's a career woman doing her own thing, has a luxurious apartment. So, I mean... You know. Yeah, which I don't know how she affords as a photojournalist, but somehow she has the most lavish apartment. I think it's. I think Bruce is bankrolling. He has an apartment somewhere, and because he does ask her at some point, he's like, "How long are you staying in Gotham?" So I think he's like, "Hey, I got an apartment that you can live." Oh, in. maybe she's renting it out. Yeah, yeah, he just gave it to her so she can stay there because he knows where she lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. But I just really like her. I mean, um, I think that she adds to the film, but. She doesn't necessarily um, take away, which is a good thing. You know, she's there. She has her purpose for being there in the scenes and in the storyline. And she's just that. She doesn't overshadow um, anyone or anything. She kind of does her job. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about her I liked. Yeah, I uh, the thing about Vicki Vale, like, I I think Basinger does a good job. You know, you could probably say that the role might be a little underwritten, too. Like, they don't really give her well, yeah. a lot of yeah. great characteristics. Yeah. She seems to come alive for me, though, and this is what's really odd about this film, that I don't really hear mentioned too often. She has terrific chemistry with Robert Wool, who plays Alexander Knox. Mm-hmm. Like, I, she comes alive, there's a lot of interaction there, there's a lot of chemistry, great chemistry between the two. And then when she's with the guy she's supposed to have chemistry with, which is Michael Keaton, Bruce Wayne, it's almost zero. They're just kind of like, hi. Very serious. Well, here's yeah. the thing. Um, Robert Wool's not rich. Well, that, <laughs> he doesn't have a mansion. Well, that, and, and also they could be friends for some time. I imagine they work together in the industry. She was a photographer. He was a reporter. You know, she has a whole spiel about let's work together. We can make a fortune kind of thing. So my my guess and my hunch is that she already knows him. He's like a friend. Well, they made it clear in the beginning, though, that he had just met her when she came oh, really? into the office. Yeah, like their first scene together, he goes, oh, yeah, I know you both. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe they had come across. Maybe she was aware of her. Gotcha. I don't know yeah. if they knew each other, though. It was... And also, okay, also, too, if I, if a rich, good-looking, rich, very mysterious man was interested in me, I would still have a little bit of a guard up, you know what I mean? Like, because she's very suspicious of him, even though she's attracted to him and she likes him, she gets the sense that something's going on, but she doesn't know what. So in that situation, you're not going to, you're going to have a totally different interaction with that person Mm -hmm. versus someone who you have no attraction to. And they're, you know, you just want to get whatever you can out of them for professional purposes or whatever, um, when you have nothing to hide and you're not trying to impress them. 
you, you're kind of somewhat of a different person, just like you are around your family. Mm -hmm. But if you are interested in someone and you just met them, you know, you're still sort of feeling that person out. And I think that that's the case with the two of them. So that could be why the chemistry isn't like, blah, 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 blah. We, you know, we've been dating for 30 years. Because they haven't. They've only been dating for maybe a month tops. Mm -hmm. I mean, depending on how long the time span was in the film, I don't know. So I think it's probably a lot to do with that. And speaking from a woman's perspective, you know, I could definitely tell you if you're, you've got some really good looking, you know, rich, mm -hmm. powerful man interested in you, um, you're going to have fun and you're going to enjoy that and you're going to explore it. But I don't think you're, as a woman, you're not going to lay everything out on the table. Certainly mm -hmm. not. Um, and Bruce Wayne in this case is definitely kind of keeping his cards close to his chest too. Mm -hmm. But they still like each other, you know, mm -hmm. and they still want to explore that, but... I do think early on in the film, they let Bruce Wayne have a little bit more personality, especially at the party, yeah. where he's yeah. doing the Yoda thing, like, who are, you know, I'm not really, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but he comes in, he jokes with Roy, he gives him the grant, he pats him on the back, he shows some kind of, like, fun, you know, mischievous side to him. Yeah. But he doesn't really show that throughout the rest of the film. Uh, you know, outside of, like, when he asks her wait and he comes down, he's like, you're a little bit, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Which it's... Which further solidifies yeah. my theory just then. First of all, women lie about their weight anyway. Yeah. That's just what women do. But if you're, again, you know, you're some new guy, you're going to just say, oh, light as a feather, or, you know, like, I wake up like this, even though well, you ran into the bathroom. She, she didn't know she he was it. Bruce Wayne then, she just, you know. No, but still, I mean, it's just <laughs> kind of like a woman. How tall is she? She's like, I don't know. Five... Nine or she's pretty tall. Yeah. Yeah, and she's definitely not 108. 108 pounds is pretty light. Yeah, she's probably considerably. So she's probably 120. Maybe. No offense, Kim Basinger, but we. You look good, but you're. There were a lot of complaints when this movie came out about her screaming, though. I remember that. Like people were saying she screams too much. She's too much of a damsel in distress. It was kind of like Kate Capshaw in Temple of Doom. People just really had a polarizing. No, nobody screams more than these two people here. The little girl in Jurassic Park. Oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Someone, oh God. And the woman in Godzilla. Which Godzilla? What was the, which Godzilla was it that we watched? Was it the first one? I think so. Yeah. That woman just yells. Godzilla oh, yeah. screams a lot too, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Godzilla. Yeah. So, like, oh, yeah. Pretty much all There's yeah. a girl that screams a lot. Yeah, she screams at fish turning into the skeletons. I literally, so. like, had trouble getting through both of those movies. Even now, and I like Jurassic Park. I still have trouble getting through it because that girl, someone mm -hmm. hit her with a frying pan, please. <laughs> anyway. But, 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 but Basinger, I know that there was a lot of criticism with, with her screaming, but, and that's true. Like, when you compare it to, let's say, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, that's probably a better. You yeah. know, love interest yeah, for Batman. Catwoman also had somewhat of, I don't want to say powers, but she had reservations of her own. Kim Basinger was just a civilian. And if you're flying off the side of a building, you're going to scream. Oh, you will, yeah. You know, Catwoman knows that she can catch herself. It could so be. There's no reason for her to scream. This could be the Lois Lane comparison, because Lois, even though she was also in this situations of peril she was still tougher maybe you know she was not the Adams Lois no well it's a that's a different Lois <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought Vicky Vale did a very good job of sort of handling the Joker especially you know go back to the yeah. museum scene yeah. she just didn't sit there and scream she like had a really good survival instinct about what to say to not completely set him off 
Is this a That's real character, true. Vicky Vale? Was she in the comic books? She was in the comics. Batman had it like a, a sorted, you know, where Superman and Lois Lane have been the core relationship yeah. in the Superman comics. Batman never really had a central love interest. He had so many different love interests. I think he, they all they all they all pretty much are great. No. Yeah, Rachel Dawes, and you know, well, Rachel Dawes was a com- was yeah. never in the comics. Yeah, either. but I mean, uh, it's like there was nothing to. I think that's a great point, Josh, about Vicky Vale. You know, and even at the end on the rooftop when she sees Batman, so she starts to play it up and kiss the Joker, yeah. and that really throws him off. Purple, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, purple. And I think you're very. I think she does have street smarts, and I think people maybe aren't giving her enough credit. Yeah, I, I I agree with that, you know, and it, it, it is odd, too, how much the Joker obsessed over Vicky Vale through the second half of the movie. Like, you know, I never really thought of the Joker in the comics as, like, a Lothario, but because it's Nicholson playing him, I guess you have to have that element yeah. where he's well, lusting he, over her. He especially obsessed with her because Batman saved her from the museum. Mm-hmm. And throughout the movie, he was just jealous that Batman was getting all the attention that he felt mm-hmm. that right. he deserved. Exactly. And Vicky Vale was, I think it was kind of a status and power thing for him, is why he really pursued Vicky Vale. I don't think he was necessarily interested in her. Well, she I was think a, it was yeah. the idea of her. It could have been any woman. You know, it was just the fact that this person was linked to Batman and he couldn't have her. You know, well, she it was, was, it was probably that. the most beautiful woman in town. Well, I'm sure that was the case, yeah, too. Was. But I think it's also a lot to do with status and power, kind of alluding to what Josh was saying. You know, like, at that point, he was just sort of off the rails and doing whatever he wanted, and like, ruining beautiful artwork and doing all these things. And Vicki Vale was kind of like, no, you know, I'm not buying into this. And Batman was there with her to save her. And so it was kind of like a double, like, I'd get him and her. You know, and he knew that to get to him, he needed her. Right, and speaking of that art scene, I think that's one of that's a great Joker scene where he's just going through with the goons and destroying all the artwork. To Prince, uh, to Prince, of course. Absolutely. Let's (laughs) talk about Prince. (laughs) Music in this film. (laughs) It's unnecessary for well, in a way, it fits. What was unnecessary was a music video that Prince made for the music to this film. Oh, Bat Dance, don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one aspect of this movie that's truly dated is Prince is obviously a brilliant musician and he has a huge following. And I I love a lot of Prince's music too. I don't know if Prince fits into Batman, especially the way it's designed here. It may be too contemporary for what they're going for in this movie but it does fit the joker though it does watching nicholson move around to that dances a lot in this movie oh but there's a lot of nicholson dancing in this movie (laughs) he dances a ton and uh i love the scene like we were talking about the art scene where he's like i kind of like that one bob leave it you know like (laughs) that really gory looking uh art piece of uh that painting it looks like Inside of someone's chest. <laughs> that's, that's very gory. We can tell you're not a connoisseur with that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, um, that is a great scene. And I think the one thing that they capture with the Joker is the humor of the Joker in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when he, he electrocutes that guy with a joy buzzer, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, that scared the shit out of me as a kid, actually, when I'm watching that guy fry. Although, couldn't that guy have just said, I'm not shaking your hand anymore and moved away when he felt a I jolt? I thought the same thing, too. Or was the yeah. Joker's grip so strong yeah, that he really couldn't... How, how would the Joker not get... Because wouldn't the electricity go through him still? <laughs> I don't know. He must have some sort of... He must be grounded or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it, it, I don't know. If you use a normal joy buzzer, I don't think it shocks you. <laughs> no. Yeah, the shock. The I've never person. used one. I'm not... 
I, I don't know how a Joker is there buzzer. There's such thing as a normal joy button. Yes, there is. Yeah. There is. A little yeah. shock button. Yeah. Yeah, it, it'd be a very light shock. You can probably still get them online, but they're like joke things you can buy, like in comic books. Like, can we oh, say okay. that the Joker? Because of the Joker. When he became the no, Joker, no, 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 he no, pretty no, much re he rebranded Grisham's whole. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> quickly, like they. They have walkie-talkies. They have helicopters, uniforms, those jackets, everything. Jackets, <laughs> yeah. My personal favorite is the um, boombox that's the always boom being toted around. <laughs> yeah, the one guy's real. They have an impulse to dance to Prince, which is going to happen with with this Joker because yeah. he loves dancing to Prince music <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. more than anything else. Like even at the the balloon parade at the end, he's really getting into it. Yes, he's jumping up. Prince. Yeah. It's Prince. Whatever happened to the boombox guy? Was what's his name? I want to know his name. <laughs> Me too. Did he ever get? Did he die? Did he get really hit sure. by Batman? Was the boombox guy. guy the same guy that Batman uh, uh, threw down the cathedral? The like guy, the, the hulking guy, was like the, like, um, the boombox guy was very large. You know, yeah, he was, like he was a, a big dude. Guard, yeah. What he looked like. Yeah, he, uh, he, he had a very important work. job though. I don't. I can't see Carl Grissom listening to. Boombox. Yeah, what did that guy do under Carl Grissom? <laughs> I'm wondering that too. Like, was he was he on the side somewhere? Or Turn on uh, some Frank Sinatra. I want to <laughs> get down on the dance floor, boys. You bring that prince in here, son. You're gonna get your you're gonna get your ass kicked. Sugar here. bumps. <laughs> Sugar bumps. I love. That's one thing. I love the dialogue in this movie. It's so hard boiled. Like this. This is legitimately fantastic dialogue. It's hard boiled. It's uh, kind of original. I think the screenwriter was Sam Ham. That was the guy's yeah. name. Sam Ham. Uh, Sam the man. And he did a great job of capturing that noirish, hard-boiled dialogue, which is perfectly suited to this movie. Like, not to compare it again to the Nolan films, but the Nolan films, the dialogue was always kind of uh, expository and on the nose a little bit. Like, yeah. I need to do this to save the soul of Gotham. Like, mm-hmm. well, that could be implied. You don't necessarily have to state that. And this town needs an enema. It kind of rolls off the tongue better. It, uh, does. <laughs> it does. Never rub another man's roof. <laughs> <laughs> mime of a mime makes a moopy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The Joker dialogue, especially, is is quotable. Wait till they get a load of me. I remember that was a huge catchphrase yeah. when it came out. And he starts. Howling like an owl, or <laughs> like an owl for no reason. Oh, the Joker's laughs in this movie. Yeah. If you notice it, Nicholson's laughs change with every scene. Like he finds different yeah. variations of laughter Does in he? each scene. I didn't realize that. That's like, brilliant. He'll go like, eh, 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 he'll do yeah. that, or he'll like, yeah. you know, he'll just find different <laughs> different ways. He, so. he was great at it. I don't, I don't rem- remember any. Well, the Joker in the old show did it pretty well. Yeah, Romero did a good yeah. job. Uh, Heath Ledger, I don't remember him doing it that much. He did laugh, and he didn't have the cackles, but it wasn't like Nicholson or Romero. Like yeah. it was even Mark Hamill's laugh was great too. Like as the voice of the Joker in the well, he, he was Mark Hamill still, I think, was the best. Even though he yeah. never, he was a cartoon version, just the best version of the Joker. He was yeah. fantastic. He really captured the Joker yeah. really well. Um, that was his first voice acting gig, I think, too. It was. Yeah. The other thing was the Joker's human face paint, where he would do the flesh tone makeup. Yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. That was great. Yeah, that was actually personally kind of frightening. It was. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, that really was off-putting. Well, with that grin. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I always found his relationship with uh, Jerry Hall's character, uh, who was Alicia, who was the mole. Oh, yeah, the jagger's wife. That was kind of a disturbing relationship. You know, that's well, like a precursor to Holly Quinn almost, like, yeah. what happened there. Well, yeah. she's the reason that he became a Joker, if you think about it, because, yeah. uh, because yeah. uh, um, Grisham found out about that, you know, relationship, because that's his girlfriend. Sugar Bumps is what he called her. <laughs> and Wait, so well, he found, was it his girlfriend first? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I that was his role. If you at the beginning of the film, he's sitting there, he's like, "He'll never find out," and uh, I guess he finds out, and then he sets him up. Ah, I forgot about yeah. that. She played both sides of this with Napier and, and Grissom, and she ends up dead. So yeah. she got nothing out of it. She got a scarred face, and then. Uh... Do you guys feel like the Joker and Batman had good, what I call hero villain chemistry in this movie? Because absolutely, they have, I always felt that. There were so many independent scenes with both characters. I never really had a lot of scenes with them together. I think they had two scenes together. Yeah. Literally, the end but, of the movie and that but scene. But their scenes individually were, their independent scenes were so strong mm-hmm. that I think it was very clear to the audience who the villain was, who the hero was. Um, and so it made the scenes that they did have together just kind of flow. Everybody knew their part. You know, yeah. The audience was familiar with who everyone was i guess i compare it to like the let's see the 78 superman film with christopher reeve and gene hackman where gene hackman and, and christopher reeve were in a lot of scenes where they were really going at each other for a while like you really felt that there was yeah. a real tension not so much tension but a real relationship between the two yeah. and here like they talk about each other off and on but the joker almost seems to be i'm going to do this regardless of whether there's a batman or not even though he was the cause of my creation I'm still just doing random Joker stuff, and Batman just kind of watches them from afar most of the time. Well, yeah, they never visit each other like they're doing Superman, where <laughs> Superman would actually go and visit them, and then in the second one, he goes to visit Superman at his place. <laughs> right. <laughs> they really have a relationship. They go over each other's houses. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. I think maybe, you know, the relationship is that the Joker killed Batman's parents. I, so that's that, you know, embedded hate that Batman has for the... And he, he doesn't find out about that really till like almost the end of the movie. Till he says that he hears him say that line. Yeah, yeah. And I think the reason that that I know there was a writer strike, but I think Burton did that because in the comic books, Batman's uh, the uh, the character who killed Batman's parents was a thug named Joe Chill, and that's kind of a recurring theme. Um, but here, I think Burton decided to make the Joker the killer of the parents, so there was a definite link between hero and villain yeah. that really yeah. give it a gravitas towards the end so i can understand why he did that and that sequence where we see thomas and martha wayne murdered is mm-hmm. actually a brilliant sequence in the movie yeah, i think they the do popcorn. a great job yeah. did you know there's popcorn in another scene where the when the joker comes to vicky bale's apartment she picks up grabs popcorn off the there's this popcorn sitting on this there is yeah like a fireplace thing mantle so, Are you sure it wasn't potpourri? Maybe? No, it's popcorn. Oh. She has a bowl of popcorn oh, okay. and she's like eating it, right? Well, she right. was, yeah. It's a healthy okay. treat. So, it is. so here's I the love thing. Popcorn. So, so Bruce Wayne gets shot in his popcorn and his parents get shot in his popcorn. Is there oh, a link between the popcorn and people in the Marine family is. getting killed or <laughs> shot at? There might be. Uh, maybe that's a motif yeah. is the popcorn. The popcorn is the key to this whole thing. Good thing Vicki Vale had a plate, a metal plate in, in her room. 
And good thing that he got shot in the chest. <laughs> yeah, he knew exactly where he's gonna be. <laughs> That's a great Keaton scene too, because it's like one of the few yeah. times in the in the in the movies where Keaton goes, "You want to get nuts? Yeah, come on." He gets crazy. He turns into Beetlejuice essentially in that one moment, yeah. and uh, it's fun to watch. Like Keaton, I, I think is an amazing actor. I've I've been a fan of his for years, and uh, he's he's really good in the role. I think like a, I think he's a terrific Batman. Does very little. But his eyes are so communicative, which I think is... I think, think he's is a sexy Batman. Mm-hmm. I think he's probably the sexiest Batman that I've seen. Yeah. I and mean, I've seen all of them. And he actually did the Batman Even voice the cartoon. The best. Yeah. Even yeah. Adam West? Even Adam West. <laughs> no, I do. I, I think he is the sexiest Batman in the suit, for sure. You know, he does have those piercing eyes, and I like the bottom half of his face. No, I'm being serious. No, I'm serious. listening to him. Let's, let's, let's face it, Adam West looks like a kid in his pajamas. Yeah, <laughs> he has like kind of a beer belly. Like, he's got kind of a If I saw that guy coming down the street, like, what the? <laughs> this is not. I do not feel safe at all. <laughs> this, guy, this guy's defending my city. <laughs> I, mean, I want to question the officials, like, why are you putting so much trust in this man? Yeah. <laughs> he's a out of shape middle aged man running around Gotham. I wouldn't say he's out of shape, but he's definitely um, he not a, in shape. He had like, kind of like a beer belly. He did. He, did. he had like the, the fake eyebrows. Like. Yeah. There was a great Simpsons episode where Adam West is really like, why doesn't Batman dance anymore? I used to do the Batusi. And yeah. he goes, and why does he have fake muscles? Here, pure West. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I think that. Um, Michael Keaton was definitely the sexiest Batman. I mean, George Clooney is very good looking. Don't get me wrong. I think he was really good Bruce Wayne. The Bruce Wayne half. He didn't even do a Batman voice. He's like, like, I'm Batman now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Batman. Yeah. (laughs) Hi, I'm I'm Batman. Hey, Alfred. Let's go out for a beer. What? How are you guys... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it, but I think he. First of all, Keaton's Batman voice, I think, is the best Batman voice. I think that's a consensus, I, I, except yeah. for maybe that's what Conroy's. I'm I think he's the sexiest. I think he's the best Batman. I think that was an acting choice too. It was, mm-hmm. yeah, because yeah, he. I guess Michael Keaton's like a logic freak, and so he was like, "How they're gonna? It'll be easy to, you know, have people figure out it's Bruce Wayne." So. He decided to change his voice up when he was Batman. Yeah, it was just thing. enough. I mean, just was, enough. Yeah. yeah. Val Kilmer. I don't remember. Oh, I don't remember much about that movie. I think Val- I've, <laughs> I've heard that Val Kilmer was Batman in one of them. In the um, what an odd choice Val Kilmer was. It wasn't it like really it, it wasn't yeah. like his career was on fire. At the, <laughs> I remember saying says Val Kilmer. Who the hell is Val Kilmer? Well, he had done like Tombstone and the Doors, and those were big cult movies at the time. But that was like yeah, yeah. I always thought Val Kilmer was a really weird choice as well. Uh, I, I like him a lot. I mean, yeah, he's a good actor. Yeah. Real, I don't real have genius, anything against Val Kilmer. Right. No, me neither. I just think it was kind of weird too. It is. It was tough for me to watch another Batman after Keaton because Keaton was so good in the role. And yeah. he was one of my favorite actors. Uh, he's amazing. I'm glad now we're having this Keaton Renaissance with Birdman and yeah. Spotlight to see him back in, in prominence. But um, I, I thought he did great. And he has an introverted Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne in the comics is similar to what Christian Bale, uh, how Christian Bale played him in, in that trilogy, where he has the Playboy persona, where sure. he's trying to That's fool people. How George yeah. Clooney was like the Playboy. Yeah, but not I really. Think... You didn't even play that up. I mean, you would see that in George Clooney, but in that movie. He just kind of walked around. Which one was George Clooney in? Batman and Robin. Really bad one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
Here's the thing. I don't. Yeah, nobody... Val Kilmore is Batman Forever, right? Yes. Okay. That was yeah. Riddler I'm getting the two and two things. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, it's yeah. not hard to do. Okay. I, I think okay. a lot of people. I just, want to see a ba- I just want to see a Batman movie where it's not from Bruce Wayne's point of view. You never see. It's from someone else's point of view, so all you see is Bruce Wayne being the playboy the whole time. You never see the serious side. <laughs> yeah, that would be <laughs> great yeah, to see. One thing that's really distracting for me from the Christopher Nolan Batmans is is Christian Bale's Batman voice. I know oh, a lot of terrible. people love yeah. it, but I really am not partial to it. I think it's kind of distracting. A lot of people have issues with that voice. Do like, they? oh, okay. there's like a love-hate it's, thing it's, with yeah. the Bale voice. I just voice. think it's funny. I, yeah, I, I, I do too. He doesn't deliver dialogue well at all. It's hard to understand him, first of all. The problem is they give him a lot of dialogue to say as Batman, where he's like, it's not the hero that you need, but the one you deserve. And it's crazy, because Christian Bale can sound like anything. He can. He's a great actor. You see it in every movie. He just can't do a low-register Batman voice. (laughs) It's his limitation. Probably the easiest thing for any normal person to do is to lower their voice into a Batman voice, but Christian Bale struggles. He he was interviewed last week, and they, they asked him about Ben Affleck, and he actually said he didn't really like his own Batman. He didn't... He would have done it differently. Yeah, he had mentioned, too, so that he... Christopher Bale. Christian, Christian Bale, Bale, yeah. Yeah, Christian Bale had mentioned that he thought that Ledger... He was not able to make Batman as dark as he would have liked to make Batman because Ledger took all of that energy away in the Dark Knight, so there was no way Batman could go as dark as the Joker did. Yeah. You know. She's not supposed to. Right, yeah. That's, How dark was he yeah. went in the yeah. I wanted Batman to be a killing machine mm. who hated humanity. <laughs> yeah. I would have a voice... He had all that technology. Couldn't he put like a thing in his voice and he could sound like a... Uh... Oh my god, what would have been great is if you put one of those... What do you, I don't know what they're called, but... And this is going to make me sound horrible, but those cancer patients... Oh, the, oh yeah. You speak with that thing. Can you imagine if Batman Oh, he just that? held up a yeah, thing to his throat? Wow, that would... Would... That'd be. Well, what if he had a Bane mask? A tracheotomy. Yeah. <laughs> what, what if Batman had a Bane mask? Yeah, well, that would have been interesting. Future comic book writers, put a Bane put a no, mask I over I still his think mouth. it would be funny if he had a tracheotomy. He's like, hold on. Yeah. Pulled it out of his pocket. Okay, now. <laughs> what do you guys think of the supporting players in this movie? Like Alfred, Commissioner Gordon, Harvey Dent, mm. and oh, the mayor. Alfred, like, is this is the best Alfred yes. ever. Yeah, yeah. He's so great as Alfred. Michael Goth is the name of the yeah. actor. He had come up in Hammer films like with Christopher Lee and those guys and he's a really warm Alfred I do love Michael Caine's Alfred too but I think uh, Michael Goff although that that story he tells isn't that funny for as much as they laugh about the horseback riding (laughs) well they were drinking they were (laughs) and that's the last time I that's the only joke I know (laughs) I don't know any of their jokes I'm sorry I have to entertain you because Bruce Wayne is such a bore (laughs) I'm not John Gielgud from Arthur I only know so many jokes before I can I can pass on uh, I, I think he's an amazing Alfred. I, I actually, I think that Keaton and Goth have great chemistry in this movie, which you need Absolutely. for Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. and Alfred. Like, they do feel like family. Mm-hmm. You really trust Alfred. That really comes clear. I can't say the same for Commissioner Gordon. He's a very minor character. Yeah. He's basically a, 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 just like a generic grandfatherly character. You know? <laughs> I just imagine him going like, when are, when are you going to put that casino thing up? <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame any of these cops for being corrupt in this movie because the commissioner is just... Love, I mean, he's going to town on that. Like, <laughs> he's gambling at oh, that. Yeah. Um, you know, but Harvey Dent... And the mayor, who's based off of Ed Koch in New York, the actor was cast because he's an Ed Koch lookalike. Ed Koch was the mayor of New York in the 1980s. And these officials are just kind of, 
they're talking about how they want to stop the crime, but they don't really do anything other than talk no. to each other. They only cared about the, the dumb festival. That's all they cared about was the 200th anniversary. It was going to bankrupt them, and they were still like, oh, we need to have it. We need hot dogs. And why does the DA care about how much money they're losing? I don't know. There's like three people who run the government. I'd be like, this is not your jurisdiction. I would have loved to have seen Billy D. Williams as Toothpaste, though. Oh, no, that would have been interesting. I would love to see him become Toothpaste because they spent too much money on that festival. He's like, I'll show them. (laughs) I'm going to flip this coin. This is the last coin that Gotham has left. There is no coin flipping by Harvey Dent in this movie. That's a glaring omission. You're right. I mean, he he smokes a he cigar. He does yeah. not even uh, allude to anything. He was a yeah. very flat character in this film. Yeah, the, the only reason this, that character worked in this movie is because he's played by Billy D. Williams. Because Billy D. Williams is such a naturally charismatic guy. He's dressed to the nines in this movie oh, too. Yeah. For a DA, he's got like. Are district attorneys that big? I mean, they, in all these movies, they make these district attorneys seem like they're the biggest deal when they get elected and they've got these huge press conferences. Yeah. I, I mean... Yeah, I mean, not, not in Columbus. <laughs> no. no. I couldn't name our DA, you know. Uh, I, yeah, it's weird. And the mayor, like, the DA and the mayor and the commissioner, the police commissioner, are always hanging out together. Like, they're, ne- they're inseparable in this mm-hmm. movie. They're like a trio. I wonder if they room together in this movie. Yeah. I'm wondering. They're always around each other. Yeah. They're partying. They're walking out of the... They always, <laughs> Heck, they use those steps all the time. They're walking out of that with the city hall or whatever. Well, the caveat was that Billy Dee Williams accepted the role of Harvey Dent because he thought he would eventually become Two-Face in the series, which is a natural That's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> That's a reasonable assumption, basically. Yeah. That's like you signed up to play Clark Kent. Oh, I think eventually I'll play Superman. Right. Probably. <laughs> now, he was eventually replaced in this series by Tommy Lee Jones as, as Two-Face, <laughs> Which I have, a, that's one of my guilty pleasure performances. Not to get on another movie, but Tommy Lee Jones as Two Face, I, I do have a soft spot for. Now, I liked the other guy who did it in the Nolan movies. What was his name? Aaron Eckert? Yeah, Aaron Eckert. Yeah. I thought he was a good Two Face. He was very good Two Face. Yeah, he I was. I really liked him. He was good. I, I kind of wish there was more flam, not overly flamboyant, but more of the duality of Two Face in that performance, yeah. you know? But. But uh, in this movie, Harvey Dent's okay, but he's not, like, he is a superstar DA, obviously, in the beginning, because that's a big plot line in the first yeah. half of this movie, is an Harvey Dent. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. It's just, I think it's because it's Billy D. Williams. Yeah. It's just going, hey, Colt 45, on everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, Wearing scarves and... <laughs> whoever, stogies. The most powerful man in this movie is whoever runs uh, Fedora and Trench Coat Shop. <laughs> Because that's all the haberdashers have got. <laughs> that's exactly right. Like that's 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 the key. Maybe that's this. what Grisham's business was: access chemicals and, and haberdashery. <laughs> <laughs> that's how he made his living. You know, uh, I we've talked about the production design, but I, I love the Batmobile mm-hmm. in this movie too, too, and the Batwing. The Batwing. I, I, you know, I, I think those are very. That's a way of you can take the comic book elements and bring it into a live action in a very fun way, you know. The only problem I have is that if I had a Batwing, that's all I would use. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I use a car. <laughs> you got a you got a plane. Why would you use a car? I thought it was really weird how everybody was trying to shoot the Batwing down and it's bulletproof, but for some reason the Joker's gun. <laughs> He shot at it once, and then it... And all it is is longer. It's a, it's the yeah. same size of any other gun. This is a longer barrel, which right. would make it more accurate, but doesn't necessarily make it stronger. It's just a great visual effect where he pulls it out of his pants, and It guys. sounds like yeah. a... He pulls it out of his pants, it sounds like a sword coming out. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I love the line, though, when he's looking at the Batwing, and he goes, Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. <laughs> you notice in every Batman movie, this is a motif... 
the Joker always confronts Batman when Batman has a vehicle and he's about to attack him. And he doesn't get shot. But he can't hit the Joker for some reason, but the Joker takes him down. And in this movie, he literally locks on target. So yeah, the Batwing is like the worst target system in the history. Because it's <laughs> completely inaccurate. Because it literally shows on target. Bam. Right in the middle. And he shoots completely around them. You should have used the force. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. You need Luke, Luke would have nailed that Oh, shit. yeah. Luke would have. It would have destroyed him. Uh, how about but the Joker's... Uh, oh, he couldn't nail him because Mark Hamill played the Joker, so he couldn't... That would be like, you know, actor-on-actor actor crime. And Billy Dee Williams was... Yeah, that. Uh, there's a lot of Star Wars. Yeah, in yeah, fact, yeah. The, the corrupt cop we talked about at the beginning, <laughs> Lieutenant Nutcart, was the guy who played Porkins in the first Star Wars. The fat pilot. Does he die? <laughs> Does he die in the Star Wars? He dies yes. in Star Wars and he dies in this. So yeah. he's, he's just... He's, yeah, are you going to do every uh, every movie this guy is in? Yeah, that, yeah. The actor's name is William Hookins. So William Josh, Hookins. anytime William Hookins makes an appearance, we're bringing you on the podcast. Man, so. five-timer club, here I come. <laughs> this guy. I'm really start getting that jacket. Yeah, I think, like, the, the story here, like we were talking about, uh, when I was getting back to the hero-villain complexity. I, I, I think the final confrontation between Batman and the Joker in the cathedral sort of pays off in a way. Like, you know, I think the Joker being attacked is funny. Like, it's entertaining to watch him get his ass kicked yeah, by Batman. and that's kind of what I was trying to say. Like, when I think about, um, you know, like Superman, for example, the Superman movie that we, we just did a podcast on, um, and, you know, it was just so overboard at the end when you had Cal and... Um, Oh goodness, what, what General Zod, General Zod, just go at it for like 20 minutes. All you see is flying particles and just people, and it just, it's too much. I think that this film, in my opinion, did a, a nice job of having just enough of that interaction between hero and villain. They didn't overdo it, because when you overdo it, um, it gets to that point where it's like, it's just too much. And for me, I lose interest and I get bored. Yeah. You know, I know in the Christopher Nolan Batman, the scene with Bane. Mm-hmm. And Batman, it just goes on, and he's getting his butt kicked and all this, and it's like, uh, okay, is this done yet? You know, like, yeah. I liked, I just liked the style and how this was done. It was, it was, a, like, dialogue-based. There was violence, but it wasn't over the top. Mm-hmm. You were able to still follow what was going on. You weren't flying through the air with flying into buildings and, you mm-hmm. know, um, getting dizzy. Lots of dancing at the end too. A waltz. Which I love. <laughs> he yeah. dances on yeah. the. He yeah. even dances on the ledge. He does. He dances so much in this movie. Well, the thing is too, the Joker is not a physical threat to Batman in no, any way. So not. they're just not going to have that kind of confrontation. Yeah. He can yeah. outsmart Batman and trick him with all the. Like I love it when he spits out those. Uh, well, he doesn't. He's kind of fearless. Yeah. yeah, it's like he had that prepared. For he does. That situation. He's yeah. fearless. He doesn't have. Yeah. He doesn't care. Literally, you know, he doesn't. He's. You know, and I think Batman also too in this movie is not really in the business or the position of being exceptionally violent. Yeah. I think he's more so focused on doing you know the job, like getting rid of the bad people, intimidating people, frightening people. I think that's what he really wants to do is scare people so that they stop doing bad things. Mm-hmm. I don't think he really wants to hurt anyone. Going back to the scene in the beginning with the two thugs, if he really wanted to hurt people, he would have threw that guy off the ledge and killed them 
but instead he says, tell your friends about me. We yeah. did kick yeah. that guy through a we door. We did kick that guy through a door, and that was unfortunate. And he did bomb <laughs> access to Kenny with goals yeah, and killed probably about four times. Okay, well, aside from that, aside from that, I don't Aside think, from all the casualties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, well, you're right. He, casualties. I don't yeah. think the heart of his character and, and, and the motivation behind him being Batman is to be aggressively violent and kill people. It never is. Yeah, you know, so I think that that's a testament in that last scene with the Joker where he's just doing what he has to do to kind of stop the Joker in that instance. I think he was trying to kill him because he did punch him, like, off the building. I thought that had more to do with him killing his parents. Well, yeah, yeah. the Joker is also kind of the exception in that case, too. But I mean, as a whole, like, I, don't, I just don't think the Batman portrayed in this film yeah, is out to kill yeah, people. They're actually having arguments that this Batman kills too much in the Burton films versus really? the Nolan films where Bale really makes it a role not to kill anybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and because in the comics, Batman doesn't kill anybody. Like that's that's a big factor. Um, but I get what Tony's saying. Like you don't feel like, uh, um, you know, Batman clearly kills people. But I think because that's that's one aspect of this movie you're getting at. Like I I, I think people have pointed this out too that this Batman isn't as heroic as what you would maybe want from a Batman, where he's not as overtly heroic. I think maybe Bales, they really express it out like, I really want to save the city. I'm motivated to save the city. Um, like, there's a nobility to what he's trying to do. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's, 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 um, but maybe that has to do with communicating clearly. That this Batman is still relatively fresh. He's still in the beginning, he's in the infancy stages still of becoming Batman. Yeah. In the second so that movie, could be why. yeah, in the second movie, I thought he was definitely more heroic. Yeah, I, I think so too. Which um, uh, I per- strangely enough, I preferred the second movie. I don't know why. I mean, I think I know that the first movie is better, but I just enjoy <laughs> the second one more. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's always been something. I remember being very disappointed. I guess we could definitely do a podcast on Batman Returns because I think I was disappointed when I saw it versus the first film simply because I really like the tone that Burton established mm-hmm. here. Like it's a, the flavor, it's nourish, it's hard boiled, it's it's dark, but there's also a sense of realism. Where I felt in the second film, it felt more like a Tim Burton movie yeah. than a Batman film. And I'm not saying that's the, that's probably why I liked it. Yeah, that might be why. Like there's there's. What there's if like, I took those balloons and the one scene and made that the whole movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's that's kind of. And Pee Wee Herman was in it. Yeah, 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 which is true, you know. Uh, well, I definitely Oswald think. Oswald Cobblepot. At least in my opinion, I definitely think if, if I had to sum up this movie, you know, in five words, one of the five words would definitely be stylish. Mm-hmm. In every sense of the meaning. You know, I agree with Sean. I really like the noir feel of the movie. I like the dark tone. I think they did a great job of achieving that vision. Um, and I think it fits the character of Batman. You know, um, I like that it isn't like Sin City. I think that's taking noir a little bit too far. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's hard, to, it's hard to watch that. I think the cinematography on this film is just right. Yeah, I, I think it's a beautifully... Uh, the movie is beautifully shot, and it's great to look at. Like, I think it's... Tim Burton is one of the best visual filmmakers we've Absolutely. ever had. People yeah. have complaints about maybe his storytelling style, but I, I think that Burton is a great visual filmmaker. Yeah. He always makes a great visual impression. Kind of like Stanley Kubrick. I feel the same way about a Kubrick film. Yeah, he has a good sense of detail. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's important, especially when you're creating a, a world, you know, like Gotham. 
and you're wanting people to be in that Batman world. Yeah, and Gotham City is just a, a, a richly realized. I think all the actors even yeah. stated that they loved Absolutely. working on that set. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was actually inspired by German Expressionism, which was a movement from like uh, with Fritz Lang. I think in the 1930s, oh, he directed okay. Metropolis and. Oh, uh, I can see that now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I even think Blade Runner was kind of a an influence on the, the set design on this yeah. film too. Okay, um, which makes sense. It does, you, you know, and uh, I agree with Tony. I, like, I, I think this movie holds up for me. Like, I, I still you. love it as much as I did in mm-hmm. 1989. I admit there's some flaws maybe in the screenwriting. Maybe Vicky Vale shouldn't have been led into the Batcave by, <laughs> by Alfred. Yeah, that, that was, I meant to bring that up when we were talking about Vicky. Was that just Alfred's decision? Because... Mike, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne didn't seem really phased by it. He's just like, oh, cool, you're here. What's up? Well, <laughs> yeah. it might have been, because remember how Alfred was sort of trying to plant the idea in Bruce's head that maybe Vicki Vale could be the one? Yeah. Remember he made comments like, when you're with her, you're calm, and she seems to have an effect on you, and I remember that exchange. So maybe it was Alfred just trying to... Yeah, that a it was, yeah. Like I, I think Alfred is definitely encouraging that relationship throughout the movie, and you know, I, I think he gets frustrated with Bruce because Bruce isn't just getting into that. And this Batman, I mean, Bruce Wayne here is as introverted. This is very much an introverted Bruce Wayne. I think that's the way Tim Burton viewed it because mm-hmm. I think Burton himself is very much an introvert, withdrawn. I think so too. And I think that's how he he approached Bruce Wayne. Is like, yeah, he's not going to be a social. Well, you know, I extrovert. think that's true, but I think. Well, the social part was always even Christian Bale's Batman is introverted naturally. Yeah, but he plays up the Playboy just so no one can think it's. It's yeah. definitely not this guy. It's all you know, yeah. so visible. Um, but, um, and kind of the playoff that he wouldn't be smart enough, or he wouldn't. They would never suspect it because they would never. Someone that was Batman was so smart, and so, you know. He's the world's greatest detective, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of Batman's superpower, right? Is his ability to um, solve crimes, like he does in this one, where he solves the uh, chemical issue with the different uh, um, the components drinks. that yeah, make up yeah, yeah. the smiley he's, he's, yeah. he's the one that figures it that's out. That's all the sleuthing he really did. Yeah. It, it's it's kind of strange. Batman has very little screen time in this movie. He does. I would love to see him come out and like, that's not a sandwich. That's not a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> he solves that crime very quickly. That's a bribe. That's not a sandwich. That's a bribe. Um, I think um, you're right, Josh. You don't really see much of Batman in this movie. And that seems to be the maybe I, I think part of it is that the actors suffocate in those costumes that they can't have that many scenes with yeah. them from a practical standpoint. But also maybe they I think Burton did say he likes having Batman in the shadows. Like he doesn't want Batman outright. He doesn't say this is not a character that's going to come out all the time. He's going to reveal himself when he feels the right time is exactly. Available. And um, one I think it it's, it was probably made so to create that element of mystery. Batman is a very mysterious person, and vigilante, you know, two, one and the same. And also, he really only comes out at night. Batman really only ever comes out at night as Batman. You know, that's the whole yeah. purpose of being a Batman. You know, bats only come out at night, so Batman only comes out at night. Um, so I think that could be why, too, we only see Batman sparingly in the film. And also, I think a lot of it, too, is to create that element of mystery, and not necessarily fear, but we all kind of have a, a sense of fear for the unknown, and people are still getting... It was, it was very clear in the beginning of the movie that people were unsure of 
what and who Batman was, there was this slight sense of disbelief or even maybe an element of fear. Like, what is this? He's Batman. You know, what, what's going on? Um, so that could be it, too. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a possibility. Like, you know, uh, that that's a driving force. I want to talk in general, too. Like, what what is it about Batman and his universe for you guys? Why do you think that he still resonates with people and continues to come back with each decade in any interpretation? Um, we, we talked about this the last podcast um, I was here for, but orphan story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes the orphan story. Um, Batman is, is the type of thing that can... You can keep the same core story, but it can sort of change its face um, throughout the years. I mean, we see, you know, in the 30s, it was, you know, very noirish. 50s, 60s, it got campy. Even the 70s, it stayed campy. Mm-hmm. When things got dark in the 80s, Batman got dark. As things got darker in the 90s, it got darker. In the 2000s, mm-hmm. with, you know, the Nolan verse, it got darker. And now we're seeing, um, with Batman versus Superman, it looks like it's getting a little bit campier again because that's what people want. But it's just a very classic, based mm-hmm. on, you know, tales from long ago type of story. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also think that the core elements of Batman have always remained intact since Bob Kane, which is like Batman is, I, I think there's something just, the look and the design of Batman is so striking in a visual sense, you know, just the cowl, mm-hmm. and, you know, it just, it's, it's instantly recognizable and it grabs you instantly. And I also think maybe because he's human. Because he doesn't mm-hmm. have superpowers, yes. and he has to rely so much on his own skills mm-hmm. that makes him and his money, money. Comes yeah. from and his money, <laughs> you know, which is his big superpower is finance, yeah. you know. Um, but I also think Jewish accountant, <laughs> yeah, the true hero. Of the... the rogues gallery is fantastic. He has such a great array of villains, and they're mm-hmm. not like supernatural villains; they're just quirky, offbeat villains that have taken on a uh, persona to kind of match him, like the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler, Two Face. You know, I think there's something just really compelling about these quirky, offbeat villains that he fights. I think a lot of it, too, is, is just the fact that Batman, like all the other superheroes from, you know, days ago, is just the nostalgic factor. You know, like people grew up with Batman, so it's just something that you remember seeing and liking as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that kind of carries into adulthood with you, just like with Star Wars or anything, like me with The Little Mermaid. I think a lot of it is that nostalgic factor that... You love something so much as a kid that it becomes a part of you, in essence, and you're just going to continue to keep loving that till the end of time, you know? Uh, um, I do think it is a well-written character. I think the orphan factor is definitely there, too. The storyline, the characters, the villains, just the whole kind of concept and world of it. I think a lot of it, um, at least from my perception um, and my experience with Batman, is like the nostalgic piece of it. You know, watching this film, it's it's nostalgic. You know, for you guys, you mentioned that brought you back to your childhood. I don't have that close of a relationship with this film, but I know many people do. And that's always fun. Mm-hmm. It's just nice. Well, this movie is a lot of throwbacks to a lot of movies. Um, definitely in line with the 1940s Humphrey Bogart movies. And the ending scene is very similar to the ending scene in Metropolis, the silent film from the 20s, uh, German. Uh, great film. But they had a, a cathedral rooftop yeah. <laughs> battle, and that in Vertigo, the Hitchcock movie has yeah. a similar sequence. Yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of it's 
there's if you like old movies, this movie is like a homage to old movies. Well, it is a old movie now. So yeah, it, it is an old movie. <laughs> <laughs> I forget that it's almost thirty years old. Almost thirty. Right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's twenty five years old. But I also think like you could throw in Jimmy Cagney movies because I think Nicholson's yeah. Jack Napier especially yeah. is a lot like a Cagney character. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. always felt that way. And I like the gangster element. I, 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 that's one of the reasons I, I love this movie. It, it, it's a homage and a mixture of different elements. And I think it introduced me to different things. It introduced me to terms like film noir and German expressionism. In the gangster movie, like you got in, I got in the gangsters. Well, once you got into German expressionism, you have, a, you have not. I can't hear the end of it now. No. <laughs> it's the rage. It's sweeping the nation right now. It made you me know? question. It made me question what constitutes a sandwich. That's is, right. Is, yeah. is anything in between bread, or does it have to be meat? You wait until the next Republican debate, and you'll see Trump talk about German expressionism. You know? Oh my God! Oh yeah, yeah. He definitely will talk about German expressionism. Sean. Yeah, exactly. I can see it. 13 year old Sean that's like coming out of that movie it's like man the German expression is <laughs> right <Man. laughs> I read that phrase I didn't know what the hell it meant at the time either what the hell I is still, German I'll be honest I still don't know what now it's, it's it expressing go. yourself like a German that's what it, 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 it could be a lot of stuff that's the thing, what time frame you're on exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of different yeah. things it's it's open to interpretation like a lot of things <laughs> no it's 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 referring to like the, the metropolis is is, oh, okay. is that style it's a it's a filmmaking style you yeah. know and and it's something that's kind of dark norish and kind of stylized yeah. like what tony was mentioning that's mm. That very like Art Deco type. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you Germans for expressing yeah. yourself. <laughs> Not so much for the rest of what you've done. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. If you just stop there, yeah. How can we take this further? You had a good thing going there, Germans. <laughs> hey, we're really good at branding. <laughs> we're really good at expressing ourselves through art. <laughs> they are. What more can we do? It's the thirties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it took place, and I, I'm doing a terrible job of, of defending it. It's, 1930s Germany, they did German expressionism. Yeah. It didn't lead to anything bad at all. <laughs> no. Um, but in, in general, like that's what I like about this movie. Like It is stylized, and it's kind of a mixture of different elements that I love from different movies. And I think it encapsulates Batman for that era very well. I think it's a fine line between making it somewhat grounded where you can kind of relate to it, but also stylized where the fun is still intact. I think... The dark, the fact that they brought Batman to his darker roots from where the TV series had been in the '60s, I thought was very successful too. Yeah, you know, absolutely, yeah. And um, it was different too. I think in that um, documentary that we watched, uh, Tim Burton had said, you know, it was kind of different from what else was being, from everything else that was being shown at the time. You know, this Batman movie when it came out, in terms of the darkness and the noir and just the style of it was kind of different than anything that we'd seen with Batman prior. Yeah. And even kind of different with what was going on at the time in movies. So it definitely stood out. It, it did. And uh, I, I think that if you are looking for an entry point into the Batman film series, I think this is a, this is a great way of going about it. Um, yeah, there's, I don't think there's another place. I mean, arguably, I guess you could do Batman Begins. But even then, I think Batman Begins is for Batman fans. It is. But this is for... Anybody. Yeah. yeah, this is something that anybody can come in and enjoy. It has two great actors, Nicholson and Keaton, putting on great work, I think, here. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, I'm a big fan of both yeah. actors, so just watching them at their prime is, is fun. 
And it's Robert Wool's prime. Unless he call it, consider Arliss his prime. Yeah. If you're a fan of Arliss. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is his peak. It's like we're in the Josh. Right. <laughs> Robert Wool is a poor man's Albert Brooks, too. But I like him. I like yeah, Robert Wool. But yeah, he's, he's good. Um, Batman is actually, I always close every podcast by talking about where uh, you can find this on Blu-ray, which I think is the best way to watch a film outside of an actual theater. Yeah, don't. I, so I watched this on Netflix before I saw the Blu-ray here. The Blu-ray is just, it's so much better. It looks yeah. like it's a new movie. Yeah. It's yeah. striking. Yeah. It, it stands out. So it's great. It's, it's all the Diamond Lux edition. So if you, you look for it there. And the German expressionism just jumps out it does. <laughs> on the Blu-ray. <laughs> if, you, if you're a German expressionist you know, fanatic, you'll love this Blu-ray. Not only that, but this has a lot of great double features. It's really extensive on every yeah. aspect and element of the yeah. movie. With interviews with Nicholson, who rarely does interviews. You get to see him here. He's got a great Batman lo- like pin on this black yeah. s- s- sweater, vest. sweater vest. And he is outstandingly entertaining, even in being just Jack Nicholson. Uh, but but in general, the, it's very uh, informative and, and very honest, I think. So yeah. definitely check out uh, the Batman Diamond Lux Blu-ray edition. And I think that's about it. We're about to wrap up here. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank Josh once again for joining yes. us. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, Josh. Thanks for Did having me. Did you have me. fun? I always have fun. Uh, good, good. good. Pretty much what we do when we're not recording things. Yeah, anyway, exactly. So. We're, we're just doing something somewhat constructive with what we would do. <laughs> we probably anyway. did a 40 minutes of a podcast before we started recording. Yeah, yeah we did. Yeah. We did. Uh, I love. We love this movie. Uh, you know, with all its flaws or whatever you call it, I th- we definitely recommend it. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, well, uh, see you're you can... a Tim Burton. Yeah, about that. Take two. If you're a Tim Burton fan, this is also a great place to start alongside of Beetlejuice, I'd say. That's true. I think Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, and Batman are probably mm-hmm. the, the good primer for Tim Burton yeah. fans. You know, and I, I like Tim Burton. You know, yeah. he's been yeah, taking some too. knocks lately with, with some of the films he's made in the last decade or so. But I still think he's a genius and I he's a, mm-hmm. a really a real strong talent. So mm-hmm. yeah, agreed. And uh. Go to Idiot Box on Facebook because we're all part of the Idiot Box uh, improv show. So if you're in Columbus, check it out. Yes. Idiot Box Box Comedy or wait, Idiot Box Improv is our, you can type that in on Facebook and you'll find us. Or you could type in, yes, Columbus Unscripted's Idiot Box, um, which we do have a show coming up. At yeah. the end of this month, Dep- Dep- depending on when this yeah, is yeah, if you're going to air before the show, right? Uh, yes, yeah. yes. So but if you're listening to it afterwards, disregard. But yeah, just, well, there will be another part one about yeah. liking us on Facebook. Yeah, like yeah. us on Facebook. Yeah, you can always follow Idiot Box. It's directed by our friend Mark DeBerzio, who has been on the podcast yes. as well, and Josh is part of it as as well as the three mm-hmm. of us in yeah. th- different capacities. So, uh, we the think- show. Oh, just real quick, real quick plug the show. Um, if you're in Columbus, Ohio. Feel free to come on out. It's at Cafe Kerouac on High Street, not too far from OSU campus. It's going to be Saturday, March 26th at 8 p.m. There's no cover charge, so feel free to come on out. Um, Cafe Kerouac is a fantastic, fun, beatnik little coffee shop that also serves really nice snacks and even adult beverages, too. Um, so, yeah. And all the coffees are named after famous I was just going to say, yes, which is one of my favorite pieces about about Cafe Kerouac, but they're very generous in giving us a space to perform. So, come on out to the show. You'll get to see us do our thing and get to see what we look like if you haven't already met us. We'd love to meet our listeners and get to know you. And like uh, Cinema Wheelite on Facebook as well. You can find us there. Absolutely. Subscribe on iTunes. Yes. And Podbean. And Podbean. 
Yeah, follow us wherever you can. You know? <laughs> and rate us, too, because I guess rating us... Yes, gets give us, us five stars and yeah. tell us why you love us. Yeah. Right. And, and love uh, Josh. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Once again, Josh, uh, thank uh, you. For, I, don't, I don't have anything to plug. So. Yeah. Uh, well, you're in, his greatness. That's yeah, right. Josh, for my, Josh my, is here. My legend... And, and if you're listening to this two years from now, you know, come to Cafe Kerouac anyway. Just come sure to Cafe Kerouac just, every just March 26th. Right, yeah, and yeah. maybe we'll be there. Yeah, we'll exactly. be there. Tell him Cinema Wheel will take, or no. Yeah. yeah, tell him Cinema Wheel will take, and Idiot Box sent you. That's yeah, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye yeah. bye. Brought you a little snack, Eckhart. I know you broadcast it. Shut up and listen. Harvey Dent has been sniffing around one of our front companies. That's my territory. If there's a problem, I deal with it. Your problems are our problems. I answer to Grissom, not to psychos. Why, Eckhart, you ought to think about the future. You mean when you run the show, you ain't got no future, Jack. You're an A1 nut boy, and Grissom knows it.